He is risen. Good job. Good job. Let's do it again. He is risen. That's fun. That's also our alarm code here. So. Today we want to read uh, the scripture from uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. We like it when as a church we get to read the word of God together. So if you'll take your bulletins out, we'll read out loud God's word. This is Hebrews chapter 1 and then chapter 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This word... uh, from the the letter to the Hebrews is a word that was written to Christians who lived in cities, who lived in populated urban areas. And they lived in a society and in a culture where it was very pluralistic. And because it was a minority population that were Christian, the Christians were often marginalized. They were kept out of jobs or they were kept or, or rejected from status they were often even persecuted. And so the, the, the writer of this book is, is answering a question that these believers, these urban believers, these believers in a very pluralistic society were asking, and that is, why is it so hard to be a Christian? Why is being a Christian such a hard thing? And so the book is really written to answer that question. It's a question to those who are having it difficult because they are trying to follow Christ. And the answer that he gives is, is, is so powerful because it's not a trite answer. It's not a superficial answer. It's an answer that is only found in the, the very life and journey of Christ himself. And the call that Christ then makes on you and me throughout, throughout all the ages on his followers to have that same journey. If you look in in Hebrews chapter 12, the answer comes, he says, let us throw off every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race set out for us. And here he says is the answer. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you look at this verse, there's, there's one thing that I'd really like you to, to remember. Somehow, in the midst of what was the most horrendous punishment and crime deterrent that was ever invented by man, the cross. The cross is physically excruciating. Matter of fact, the word excruciate comes from the cross, out of the cross. The, the, the emotional aspect, it was intended that the execution would be public, that there would be uh, such shame on the person receiving the punishment. There would be such humiliation that, that people would look upon those dying on a cross and they would say, I will never do that crime. I will never do that. I'll never rebel. I'll never betray the Roman Empire. But Jesus not only suffered the indignation and he didn't just suffer the physical pain of the cross. He experienced something no one else ever experienced on the cross and he experienced the separation, the forsakenness, the abandonment of the Father as Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And the very weight of the curse of sin, the weight of the justice, of the penalty of sin was borne by Him. He was treated on the cross as you and I deserve to be treated. Why do He do that? Well, the Scripture says here, for the joy that was set before Him. So you have to ask the question, what is it that he didn't have before the cross that he then had after the cross? Because that's the joy that was set before him. There was something missing before the cross that was then available or, or uh, experienced after the cross that caused him to endure the shame for that joy. And the only thing that he didn't have before the cross that he now has after the cross is you. You're the joy that he saw on the cross. You are the one that he was focused on. You are the one he was obsessed with. That heaven would not be full if you were not there. So for the joy set before him. And this writer, this writer to, the, to these urban Christians, to this pluralistic society, comes forth and he says, there is one final word of God. There is one definitive word of God. And this day, Easter Sunday, this resurrection day, is the day in which God put his stamp and said, this is my word to the people. And this word that he spoke is Jesus. Jesus himself. And it's, it's powerful how it's described in here. It says, the Son of God, the, Jesus himself, is the exact representation He's the exact character of God. He's not just information in general about God. He doesn't just in some ways point us to God. He himself is communicating specifically who God is. He is God's communication to us. He's letting us know that what he wants from us is a relationship. He's a personal God who speaks. Jesus is his final word. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says, everything that came before Jesus was God revealing in pieces his character. 
Now he has spoken in fullness. He has spoken in completeness. I don't know about you, but when I listen to the news or I get family news or even in my own life, as, as things don't go the way I want them to go, sometimes I just want everything to be made right. I just want everything to come into alignment. I want it to work. I want it to not always be so frustrating or, all, or so disappointing or all of these things. And so a lot of times what happens is when people are talking to me, they, they'll say, you know, uh, I, I just I don't know if there really is a God because of all the suffering in the world and all the loss and all the pain in the world. And I've been, I've been thinking about this, this, this whole of Holy Week, of this week of the Passion of Jesus. And, and I began to, to realize something in a way I'd not seen it before. You see, if prior to the cross, if before the resurrection, if Jesus had just come back and he had set everything right, if he had just come back and wiped off all evil and got rid of all sin and gotten rid of all death without himself dying on the cross and bearing the judgment for you and for me, then we would have had to be some of that evil, some of that sinfulness that he would have had to cast out. If God had taken all suffering out of the world, he'd have to take you out of the world. Because just as much as you have it, you cause it. There's no one in this room that's disappointed you more than you. There's no one in this room who lives up less to your standards than you. And so instead of coming and making all things right, He came and bore the judgment that you were due and that I was due. So that when He does come to make all things right, and He's coming... And guess what? Today, it's closer than it was yesterday. The writer here says we're living in the last days. I know that it's closer today than yesterday because I'm prophetic. I have heard people say that, Pastor, is it closer today than it was yesterday? I'm like, yeah. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day, but we know He's coming. What God chose to do, instead of revealing His justice, instead of revealing His compassion and His love in an event, is He chose to reveal it in a person. And instead of wiping us off the earth, He invites us into relationship with Him. It's an awesome thing when you realize what what God has done in Jesus, Brendan Manning says it this way, it's not by looking at God that you learn who Jesus is. It's by looking at Jesus that you learn who God is. He's the image of the invisible God. There is no contrast. Jesus said, I make all things new. The God of the Old Testament is the God that assumes human form in the person of Jesus. This is wonderful. God wants to communicate you, with you. But it's also difficult because basically what the writer is saying is God is speaking through Jesus and saying, this is the way that it is and that's it. But if you've ever had an intimate relationship, you know that there's exclusivity in that intimacy. 
Anytime you've ever had a truly close relationship with somebody, you bumped into and, and touched the walls of what, they would, what I would call their finality. That these are places they do not adjust if you're going to be close to them. For the last 37 years, I've had a very close relationship with one person. And she has very definite finalities. And one of those finalities is Friday is our day off and it's our day to be together. And the day begins like this. What kind of fun, she says, have you planned for today? <laughs> now, lest you think fun is wide open to interpretation. <laughs> fun is absolutely code for which home goods are we going to today? <laughs> Which crate and barrel outlet are we going to? Or have you found a new village that has antiques that we want to look at? And among with her finality on these things is she not only wants me to go to those places, she wants me to want to go to those places. <laughs> For years, I would go and I would mope and I would sulk. And I would, I would be, a, and then later on I'd say, remember when I went to that home goods? Now you got to let me go play golf. <laughs> and she said, that just doesn't count. That doesn't make us intimate. That doesn't make us close. And I fought her for a long time because that finality of what it meant to be close to her was going to cost me something. But then I started, to, I started to think, you know, the most beautiful woman in the world wants to hang out with me. Then I started to think about this. If she goes to Home Goods for our home, she goes to these outlets for our home so that it will be comfortable, so it will be beautiful, so it will be fresh, so it will be an expression of our life together. And suddenly I started to change. And I started to say, I choose into this. I started to say, I want to this. So I get up in the morning and say, what fun? I said, well, there's this, one, there's this new home goods in New Jersey. And, and it's in a rich section, which means they'll probably have better stuff. And there's a restaurant near there where we can eat lunch right afterwards. And all the way there, she loves me. And then we buy something. It could just be a pillow, which it's amazing how much traction a pillow gets. And we put the pillow in the back of the car and she loves me all the way home. You understand what I'm saying? God is not asking for anything less than what a relationship demands. Here's the problem with so many people. You know, they see Reverend in front of my name and they'll come up. And they'll have a theological discussion with me. And they'll go, I believe in God. And I go, whoop-de-doo. <laughs> I look at them and say, I believe in George Washington. <laughs> but I can't have a relationship with him because he's dead. I can know all about him. But I can't have any intimacy with George Washington. And so there's so many people who go, well, I believe in God. Isn't that enough? No. The final word of God is, He wants a relationship with you. He wants intimacy with you. 
He wants you not just to know about Him, but to know Him. He doesn't want just to be somewhere in your life. He wants to be your life. The final Word of God, the definitive Word of God, is Jesus Christ saying, I want you furiously to have intimacy with me. And anything less than that is nothing. The Bible says God is speaking to you. People often will say to me, well, you know, I don't really, I don't like all that stuff in the Bible. And let's pick this, let's choose that. Some of this is good, some of it's not. See, you really can't have a God who cannot insult you. You can't have a God who doesn't have the right or ability to offend you. If, if, if all you have is a God that is completely complicit with you, then basically you have a God of your own imagination. And I don't know if you ever noticed, but when you're praying to your imagination, no one answers. Because basically you're praying to yourself. And if you had the resources, you wouldn't have to pray. And when you pray to your imagination, there's no one there to answer. The only God who can answer you is the God who has revealed himself to you with these finalities that you have to adjust to in order to have a meaningful relationship with your creator. He desires this relationship, but there are terms. And the terms come from him as to how you relate to him. And he has said that the way that you relate to him is through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does Jesus bring this final word? Why, why is this so important? Well, the revelation of the character of Jesus reveals to us the very character of God. One of my favorite descriptors of Jesus is found in Hebrews 1 where it says, Jesus is the radiance of the, of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Radiance is, a, is an awesome word. When you see someone and they're radiant, it's beautiful. It's glorious. When, when there's just this radiance to their, to their face or to their countenance or even to their personality, it's just very attractive. It's appealing. It, it draws you in. And when someone is radiant, there's a beauty to it. And what it's saying here, and, and, and why I think sometimes people have only met religion and they've only met the unhealthiness of the church it's because when you really, really have experienced the radiance of Jesus, everything else pales in comparison. I, religion is a pale thing. Even church at times can be a very pale, imperfect, even hurtful thing. We are not calling you to the church. We're not calling you to a religion. We're not asking you to be better people today. We're asking you to meet the glory and the beauty and the radiance of Jesus. <laughs> Man, he's shown, this, he's shown this to the people all along the way. When, when the Israelites left Egypt, they didn't leave alone. Even though they were, they were going to a place they had not been before, and, and, and they were leaving slavery behind. He did not let them go alone. But His glory led them. 
and His glory manifested in a visible way so that a cloud of His glory, of His radiance, led them by day. And at night, when it was dark, the cloud became a cloud of fire to light up their lives. When Solomon fulfilled his assignment to build a temple to the presence of God, God Himself, pleased with the fulfillment of that temple, filled the temple with the radiance of His beauty and His glory. And a thickness like a cloud filled that temple. And it was so thick that even the priest fell as dead men. They could not operate. They could not move. Their natural bodies were overcome by the thickness of the beauty and the radiance of God. And they were slain in their spirits. You see, if all you've ever seen is a puny little imitation of Jesus, and you've not been slain by Him, and you've not been consumed by Him, and you've not been broken by Him, you've never met Him. Are you tracking with me on this? You see, I do love the church, and I do love obedience, and I do love doing what's right. I love those things, but that is not my treasure. That's not what's ultimate to me. The church has hurt me. I've hurt people. People have hurt me. I've disappointed people. People have disappointed me. In this earth, it will always be a very imperfect church because we're part of it. What gets me in this passage is the picture of Jesus. And the more and more I open up my heart for Him to reveal His radiance, the thicker and thicker the cloud of His presence becomes in my life. Everything else pales in comparison. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the Shekinah, the shining glory of God. And He wants to fill your life. You're the temple He wants to fill. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul makes it clear what he's talking about with this kind of glory that fills you. He says, when one turns to the Lord, when your your life begins to turn toward the Lord, he says, then the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I can't speak for you, but I know even when I was a little kid, there was something inside of me that said there has to be more. That it can't just be school and work and trying to be a good boy. There has to be something more. There was, even as a child, I could feel that there was a veil that began to lift and began to be taken away as I, as I gave my life and turned my life in a personal way towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And every step of the way, and sometimes it's been significant encounters with the Lord, and sometimes it's been in times of disobedience, in times of depression, and sometimes for me it's been in times of discouragement, and I've met Him in my lowest places, and even in the lowest places of my life, it was glory to meet Him face to face. And it's in that 
union with Him, in that uniting my life with His, not just having Him in my life, but letting Him be my life, that that glory that was hinted at, that was veiled in my youth, has become the treasure of my adulthood. This is what it's talking about here. It's saying basically that you can live your whole life veiled, but inside of you there's an ache, there's a longing, there's a voice that's saying, but there's glory and you're missing it. There's radiance and you're settling for charm or you're settling for what this world's praise can give you. You know, what a transformation takes place when we enter into relationship with God's final word, the God of truth. Well, there's personal implications for this. You see, this writer was talking to a pluralistic society where there were all manner of religions competing for the minds and the hearts and the souls of people. And this writer says to this group of people who are being persecuted for their faith and those who are being marginalized for being Christians, he says, look, look friends, this is God's final word. There is no backing off from this truth. Jesus, you see, makes outrageous claims. Jesus does not just claim to be a moral teacher. He doesn't just claim to be, you know, a good guy. Jesus makes outrageous claims. One of my most favorite, I would say, outrageous claims of Jesus is this. When a prophet would speak, even when you and I speak and we say, I think I'm hearing from God and here's a word for you. When we do so, we can't do it without saying something like, I believe the Lord is saying this. And in the scriptures, when the prophets would speak, they would say, thus says the Lord. Or if you hear prophets in King James, thus saith the Lord kind of thing. All right. Jesus never did that. Never, ever did that. He said, truly, truly, I say to you. He's not. Whew, when you think about it. Now, some of his little side comments are fascinating. So he's talking to the disciples. He goes, yeah, you know, I was there when Satan was kicked out of heaven. OK, so if you're one of his followers at that moment, you go. He's either a lunatic or he was there. And then he's getting, he's getting all kind of questioning by these religious leaders and he just throws out this little thing. He goes, before Abraham was, I am. Everything Jesus teaches about himself is centered around his own knowledge of who he is. One of the New Testament scholars, who I think captures this in this quote, says it this way. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That fire has become flesh? That life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of these things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. So you're being called and invited to live in the reality that Jesus is God's final word. This verse, this person, Jesus Christ, he... He even, with the universe being as vast as it is, I mean, all you have to do 
is spend a little time on BBC America watching Planet Earth or a little time on PBS watching some kind of nature program and you'll go, this is, this is amazing. This is fascinating to watch the beauty, the, crea the, the, the created order, all the things that go on in these things, uh, many of them inexplicable, and yet our world is only this tiny little speck in all the worlds that there are, and yet it is revealed that Jesus Himself holds every bit of it together by the word of His power. He is, and He always will be, utterly and completely devoted to you. He asks nothing less from you than the same thing He gives to you. It's worth devoting your life to learn what it is to be as committed to Him as He is committed to you. There's also these cultural implications from Him being the final word. See, we live in a day that's probably the most secular, secular age that has ever lived. And you will hear voices saying to you, in what sounds like, very, very uh, sensible kind of advice. They will say something like this. All religions are the same. We should all just learn to get along with each other. And none of you should be making exclusive claims to your religious truth. Right, the first thing you have to realize is that statement is incredibly Western. It's very white. And it's incredibly secular. And what they're really saying, if you listen closely, is our view of life is superior to every other view. So it is not an act of equality or humility. It's an act of superiority that says the only view of reality that really counts is ours. And it is a view of life that has not existed in the world until recently. That's one thing. I mean, come on, that's... Come on, I, I don't think I can say this again. <laughs> it's on tape. Here's what, here's what happens if you can say all religions are the same. And no, no religion really has the truth. Is that you do not believe... You do not believe there's judgment you do not believe that you will ever face judgment. So whatever behavior you want to express and whatever you want to do is okay because there is no life after death. You have to understand something. There really is no such thing as an atheist. Now, there are people who call themselves atheists, and I, and I know they say there is no God, but, but here's, this is the real issue. Everybody worships something. Because worship just simply means that you value something. That you believe it has worth. And every human being has something that they believe has ultimate worth. And therefore, what you believe to be ultimate is actually God, whether you call it that or not. Now, this week, during Jesus' passion, during Jesus' walk towards the cross. Something amazing happens in Matthew. We talk about it in our devotional this week. But is this, there are these two stories that are put together that are unforgettable. The first is that Jesus is in this house and a woman comes in and she has this expensive perfume 
And she breaks this beautiful box that it's made in. And she spills out the perfume and anoints even his feet and anoints him. You see, she valued Jesus. She saw worth in Jesus that was greater than the worth she saw in the most priceless material treasure that she had. She believed that he was valuable. He was the one she was committed to. So she took her treasure and she poured it out on him. Because you value this. Now, the disciples looked at that and said, this woman's crazy. We could have done so much good with that money. See, what they're really saying, they're not really making an appeal to social justice here. What they're really saying is, we don't value Jesus that much. So to us, this extravagant gesture is excessive because he's not worth it. And one of the disciples got so angry that he went out and found the religious leaders and said, what will you pay me to betray Jesus? And Judas received his 30 pieces of silver because what he valued was not Jesus. What he worshipped was not Jesus. But the problem is that once he really knew what he had done, he realized that what he had worshipped betrayed him. What he had valued had betrayed him. That he had gone for the temporary. That he had gone for that which is only now. When he could have had that which is eternal. And he took those valuable 30 pieces of silver. And he tried to buy his way back. Only to still realize that what he worshipped had betrayed him. I came to the conclusion as I read that. You'll never betray what you truly worship. But what you worship can betray you. This woman who gave her treasure to anoint Jesus, even to this day, is still famous. Because Jesus said, this act of worship is so appropriate. This act of valuing me is so equal to my value that this woman's act will be proclaimed with the gospel until I come again. Can I... Are you tracking with me on this? Can I, can I give you an implication or application from this? When you get what is ultimate right, when you really value what is truly ultimate instead of making something value less ultimate in your life, then all the other things start to fall in place. If you decide that your house is ultimate or your family is ultimate or your job is ultimate, they'll ultimately betray you. But if you have who is ultimate, Jesus, as your treasure, and he's in that place that he is supposed to be in, that's appropriate for him in your heart, then houses are nothing. Jobs are nothing. Fame is nothing. Jesus can do in seconds what you cannot do in a lifetime. But what he's trying to do is touch the things that you have put in his place. And even reveal to you how betraying they are to your heart. True peace is found in Jesus. 
Now, the last thing I want to talk about is, well, how do I get this word of power into my, my life? Well, the message of Jesus so impacted this group of, of disciples that we call apostles that they began to preach of Jesus everywhere they went. And this letter that I read to you from Hebrews is what's called an apostolic letter. It's a, it's a letter written by those who've been entrusted with the very words of Jesus. And this writer speaking to these people in these different in these cities says to them these words. He says, pay careful, pay much attention to the word that has been spoken by the apostles about Jesus. And as I study that word, I understand why the translators put in some ways a, a blander kind of word, pay much attention. But but the problem with that is it sort of it sounds not really extreme. It sounds like, okay, well, I'll pay attention to this. And uh, the reality is that the word attention here is actually the word obsession. And then the, the idea of careful attention when they translate is actually furiously. So what the writer is really saying, and I'm not sure why they didn't translate it this way, but what he's really saying is pay furious obsession. Be furiously obsessed with Jesus. Now, some of you might think, well, that sounds horribly extreme. But in reality, have you ever really done anything where you really became great at it that you weren't obsessed with it? Or have you never been furiously obsessed with anyone? I remember this really pretty dark-haired beauty with exotic good looks who lived 10 hours away from me in Kentucky who I uh, would, uh, Friday after class, would get in my car and drive as fast as I could to be there next to her. And I would sit there and think on Sunday night, how late can I leave and still get back in time for class? She, I was furiously obsessed with her. And you know what? It was the best thing that ever happened to my, me and my, my life because now after 37 years of marriage, I am still furiously obsessed with her. But it's not just in relationships. In it, Ever watched anybody who really gets good at soccer? They live with the ball. They eat with it. They go to sleep with it. They're bouncing it all the time. How many kids who played their piano just because mom made them for 10 minutes ever got good at piano? They usually quit. They stopped. Any violin player, any guitar player, our worship team, these guys were at some point, you could see the obsession that is now manifesting in worship. You understand, this is, this is not a word for you to say, thanks for giving me something to think about. This is a word that's calling into the deep part of your soul, into who you really are and saying, will you become furiously obsessed? And if you already at some point kind of gave your life to Jesus, what this writer says is it's extremely easy to drift away. Now, let me, let me show you two things. I hear the music, so i got to hustle. Okay, let me show you two things quickly. The first is this. The writer says to his hearers, there was a message that was given by the angels. That's the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the first five books of the, of the, of the Old Testament. These are, these are messages that were given by angels. And he said, people began to furiously be obsessed with that message. 
Even to this day, you will see people by their clothes that they wear, by their hair that they have, by everything that they do, that they are still people who are furiously obsessed with a message that the apostolic writer said was a message that was given by the angels. Because they understood that there would be disastrous consequences if they failed to obey this message given by the angels. And then he says to his hearers, to us today, he says if they were obsessed with a message delivered by angels, how much more should we be furiously obsessed with God's message himself? He didn't bring it by angels. He brought it to us himself. God is in Christ complete. The fullness of the love of God. The fullness of the power of God. And he says, how can you escape if you dismiss or choose not to receive such a great salvation? If you could picture right now your heart like wax. See, in the old days, there's a, there's a picture in this in these passages. There's a, a picture of how they used to seal letters when they would seal a letter they would put hot wax on the fold of the letter and then they would take their ring their signature ring and they would they would stamp or imprint that ring into the hot wax and the word that that was called was it gave it character what happens if you only listen to the message of the angels and you only try to be a better person or you only try to be a more moral person or you try to be a nicer person all that's happening there is that the word of God or the stamp of God or the character of God is trying to imprint itself into a hard waxed heart now I don't know if you've ever done this but if you try to make a stamp in hard wax the best that the character will do is a very shallow and superficial imprint on the wax or if you decide, I'm going to push harder on that hard wax and I'm going to make a deeper imprint, then all that will happen is the hard wax will break. This is a picture of those who try to have a standing with God or a relationship with God by trying to keep the law. Some will have a bit of the character of God. They'll have a bit of the morality of God, but all it is is a superficial imprint on hard, cold wax. Others, as they try so hard to be better people, to be good people, to be righteous people, instead, the weight of the law just breaks them into pieces. What is being offered to you today through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit is to take your hard, waxy heart and turn it in to a warm and inviting place for the full imprint of the character of God through the Lord Jesus Christ who is the very representation of God, the radiance of the glory of God to be imprinted on your heart in such a way that it is deep and goes all the way to the foundation of your soul. This is God's final word. His final word isn't the word of angels. His final word is He gave Himself to you, for you. Will you give yourself to Him, 
for him. Will you stand with me? I have this this picture that I'd like you to close your eyes and just allow God himself to begin to speak to you. Maybe you say to me, I've never heard God speak. Let me let me just say that a lot of times what he does is he gives you a picture in your head or he speaks a Bible verse or just something became, becomes a sense of his presence. I want you to ask him. I want you to look clearly. Is my heart hard wax or soft? Has it been warmed? See, in a, in a sense, for wax to go from cold and hard to warm and soft, there has to be a furious obsession. There has to be a fury. Something that takes you out of the status quo. Something that reminds you how discontent you are. Something that says there has to be more. Something that's calling to you like Paul talked about. How you were once veiled, but having turned to Christ, you are now looking at Him with an unveiled face. And the glory of the sun, the glory of His radiance begins to melt the hard wax. Would you say these words with me? I mean, it's just to try them out. See if this fits with your faith at this moment. Would you say this with me? Lord, I give you the wax of my heart. Take this hardness, this coldness, and all my attempts to imprint goodness, to try to be better, Take these to the cross right now. You are obsessed with me. You are committed to me. I was what you didn't have before the cross. But you have me now. Can you say that again? But you have me now. It is not unusual. I mean, you may not experience anything physical, but it's not unusual for a heat to come. John Wesley said that when he saw this, his heart was strangely warmed. See, something has to happen to the wax, friends. Something has to happen so he can imprint the radiance of his glory, the character, the exact representation on your heart. God doesn't want to be in your life. He wants to be your life. He wants to be your source. He wants to be ultimate. He is the only thing you will ever value that will not, that will not betray you. He said these words, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. The apostle understood this. He said, I know the things that I've committed to him. He will keep until that day. And the work that he began in me, he will complete. It's a silly, simple, prophetic word, but I hear for some of you right now, the Lord saying, if you'd give me an inch, I'll take a mile. So whatever of that heart you can open up, that's where he wants to heat it up and warm it up and imprint it. 
Lord, will you seal what you're doing now in our midst? Thank you for your presence. You are the final word. And we bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We have folks, uh, with some of my prayer folks, would you come up? Would you come up? We have folks who will pray with you before you go today. Happy Easter, everyone. We're glad that you celebrated it with us today. God bless you.